Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Trust is the one thing that quite literally changes everything. And this conversation with my guest today, who is Stephen M.R. Covey. Now, if that last name or even the first name rings a bell with Stephen R. Covey, uh, then you're in for a real treat because if you know who Stephen R. Covey is, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of my all-time favorite books, then I had the absolute pleasure and the opportunity of speaking with Stephen R. Covey's son, Stephen M. R. Covey. Now, Stephen M. R. Covey is the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of the book, The Speed of Trust, which has been translated into 22 languages and has sold over get this, 2 million copies worldwide, which is honestly insane. He is the co-author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Smart Trust as well. Stephen brings to his writings the perspective of a practitioner as he is the former president and CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, where he increased shareholder value by 67 times and grew the company to become the largest leadership development firm in the world. I mean, this guy, he knows literally everyone. Tony Robbins, you've got Larry King, you've got Spencer Johnson, you've got Seth Godin as well. You have Horst Schultze, uh, who is another personal friend of mine as well. You've got so many amazing people that Stephen M.R. Covey knows. Um, but more than that, Stephen is a Harvard MBA. Uh, he co-founded and currently leads Franklin Covey's Global Speed of Trust Practice. He serves on numerous boards, including the Government Leadership Advisory Council, Partnerships uh, for Public Service, and has been recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Top Thought Leaders in Trust from the advocacy group Trust Across America, Trust Around the World as well. He's been featured in a number of amazing articles. Highly encourage you, if you don't know uh, where to find him 
All links are in the show notes below, but just Google Stephen M.R. Covey. He's not that hard to find at all. Go and get a copy of his book. I've started reading it and I'm hooked already. And this conversation is going to be literally a masterclass in building trust. We dive into everything, my friends, and I, I know you guys are absolutely going to love it. If you are a fan of Stephen R. Covey's work, then you're going to be a fan definitely of Stephen M.R. Covey's work for sure. All right, my friends, if you do get something from it, please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Help support Stephen and his message by tagging him on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it, all those places. Uh, don't forget before you go to leave a rating and review. Also, uh, don't forget to subscribe as well. Appreciate each and every one of you. So you guys know what time it is. It is time to readily and speedily journey into this story box today as we hear from the amazing, wise, and uh, incredible human being that is Stephen M.R. Covey and his story. Wow. Thank you so much, Jay. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Have a chance to talk about a... Uh, um, the things I'm passionate about, my story, if you will, and really admire you and what you're doing with the Storybox podcast. It's really great to have you here. I mean, I was telling you just before how much your father's book has changed my life. And I have no doubt that your book, when I do receive it, will change my life too in a positive way. You are doing so many amazing things. You are one of the outstanding leaders in our society today, which we do need. We do need more positive impacting leaders, which I just want to say, I acknowledge that and I say thank you for it. And I'm excited to have you here. Before we dive into your backstory in just a moment, I have one question I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is what does success look like for you? Here's what success looks like for me. It's primary greatness over secondary greatness. Secondary greatness is kind of accolades, achievements, and, and um, you know, things we accomplish and do. And it could be status, it could be money, it could be lots of different things. There's nothing inherently wrong with that because it could be recognition for good things. But if we get our identity and self-worth from secondary greatness, we'll always be behind others and 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 you know and we could lose our sense of security and worth mm. primary greatness is is about who we are and what we're becoming and it's about uh, credibility and trust it's about love it's about purpose it's about contribution and and uh, not just accumulation mm. and and you know and so what really matters in life in my judgment is contribution more than accumulation, mm -hmm. making a difference, mattering. That is true. Primary greatness is, is to, is to make that difference. And so I'm not against the secondary greatness, but too often in our society, we start to measure success on the secondary things, yeah. status, prestige, money, um, accomplishments, achievements. And again, I like those things, but the greater measure of success, in my judgment, is primary greatness, character, mm. integrity, um, contribution, yeah. 
love, trust, um, becoming this kind of person, giving back, making a difference, mattering. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, and so, and helping others, you know, contributing, uh, giving and helping others. You know, the, the thing you're trying to do with the story box, ultimately, I, I read it, you know, helping people realize their worth and reach their full potential through stories. Wow, that's helping people real, you know, realize their worth and their full potential. That to me is all about primary greatness. And so that to me is the best measure of success is the, the those foundational things that we sometimes overlook and society sometimes overlooks and looks at the more recognizable greatness that's secondary. Mm, I absolutely love that answer. Now, for someone that isn't, you know, in their primary greatness at the moment, yeah. what kind of advice would you give to them so that they can live in their primary greatness rather than the secondary greatness? Because it is a very difficult thing to do to get to that primary greatness and stay there. <laughs> it, it, it is. And, and there's a little bit of a, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at play here too, right? Yep. In other words, um, it's easier to move into primary greatness when you have some level of secondary greatness in the sense that you feel a little bit more secure such that you can now say, you know what, I'm having some success. Now I want to help others have success. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but I would say that while there is a little bit of a, of a hierarchy of needs and, you know, we're always trying to, I like to say that we go from some, from survival to stability to success, to significance. Ooh. And, and um, so when we're in, when we're, in, when we are in survival, you know, you're just trying to stay alive, right. And, and just trying to keep your head above water and make it. And, and sometimes in those settings, it's hard to be focused all about contribution. I understand that. And, and I've seen that I've been there and, and um, so I'm not trying to be, Pollyannish about this and 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 overstate how it's all just about trying to make contributions when we got to survive as well. We do have to survive and then we, we try to become stable and then we try to succeed. What I'm really just trying to say is if we have the mindset from the beginning that we yes, we want to succeed, and the best way we will help, we will ultimately succeed is also by helping other people succeed. Mm. And bringing people along with us, taking people with us, and not seeing it as entirely lockstep, which is, yeah, I'll give back as soon as I've made it. <laughs> um, if we can say, I'm going to try to give back along the way of making it. Yes. And, and so that this becomes a mindset, a way I see the world. And the very mindset of that and the, and the, and the actions and the patterns that you'll actuate as you put that into place will help you succeed mm. and it will help all of us succeed. And so to me, it's, it's uh, kind of not an either or, or it's not just kind of a, you know, once I do this, then I can do that. It's part of being able to do that is to see, trying to do that all along the way, always mm. trying to serve, always trying to create value, even while we're trying to survive. Mm. And it sounds Simple, but it's very difficult, as we all know, you know, especially when we're trying to survive and and trying to be stable and and trying to have some success. And I'm saying have the mindset from the beginning that our greatest success will be as we help other people succeed, too. It's not either or it's and it's both. Mm. 
I have to totally agree with you on that. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have completely disagreed with you on this because it was coming from a very selfish mindset. I didn't want anything to do with helping others. It was just all about me and me only. But now that I'm living in my purpose, it is the most, it's the greatest reward and the biggest blessing I have ever known in my life to help others realize that they are worth something, that their story does matter because a lot of people, they do struggle with it. A lot of people don't even know that they are great. A lot of people don't even know how to win in life. They're, they're all struggling with that because there's so much negative that is coming forth, whether it's through social media, the media, whatever it is, it's just trapping them, trapping their thought process, trapping their, their entire mindset and then that makes them feel like they're stuck. One thing that I'm curious about for you, Stephen, is where, when was the moment for you that you have developed this kind of mindset? What age were you? I'll, I'll tell you the moment. Um, I, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have had such a great father and, and mother, for that matter, too. She's his equal. And she's passed away. They both have passed away, but I hold them close to my heart. They're part of my life. Their influence is so profound. But my father, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, he he was who you thought he was. He is who you think he is in the book, that he's a really a, a profound thinker and person. And so he taught me. And, and I, I'll never forget, I was just a uh, you ask how old I was. I was a six-year-old boy. And and uh, he taught me a, a very simple thing. We had a family meeting and he was trying to teach kids responsibility, all of us. There was, I had, um, at the time, I think I had, there, there's a total of nine Covey children <laughs> and I'm the third. So at the, at the time, there might've been uh, four or five of us. Mm-hmm. And we had this family meeting and, and he said, okay, who's going to take this responsibility and that? And I volunteered as a six-year-old to take care of our lawn, mm-hmm. our grass. We had a big yard with a lot of lawn. And this was back in the days before automatic sprinklers and, and before we had as many droughts too <laughs> as they were going on. And, and, um, and so my dad trained me how to take care of the lawn. And he wrote about it in his book, Seven Habits. He calls it green and clean. Mm-hmm. And he trained me how to you know, help turn the lawn green by watering, by turning on the sprinklers, and also by keeping it clean, by, you know, picking up the garbage and that. And he trained me over a two-week period of time. And he said, now how you achieve green and clean is up to you. If you want, you can, you know, take buckets of water and throw it on the on the lawn or use a hose or spit all day long. But, you know, all I care about it is that is green and clean. But I think if I were you, I would recommend you turn on the sprinklers, you know, but he was teaching me to take responsibility and that what mattered was the results, the outcomes, green and clean. So after two weeks of training, he now turns over the job to me. And this is in the middle of the summer. It was scorching, you know, heat. And, and, um, and I, after two weeks of training, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just languished and I, the first day goes by, Saturday goes by, did nothing. Sunday goes by, did nothing. Monday, nothing. Tuesday, nothing. And now, you know, now the lawn is starting to yellow and we had a big neighborhood barbecue over the weekend. 
and there was garbage strewn all throughout the yard. It was anything but green and clean. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors right next door had these manicured, beautiful green and clean yards. And ours is turning yellow with garbage everywhere. And my dad said he was this close, you know, just really close to just kind of taking back the responsibility and saying, you know what, he's just too young. You know, you can't do this at age six. It's too young. But he didn't do it. He stayed with it. And and uh, and part of our training, part of our agreement was that once a week we would walk around and I would share how we were, you know, we were doing on the on the yard. Mm. And so my dad said, why don't we walk around? This was like on the fifth day of me doing nothing mm. and the yard, yard turning yellow. He said, why don't we walk around and see how we're doing? So we began to walk around the yard together. And I looked around and I, and I could see the yard was yellow and it was messy, not clean. And it was anything but green. And I'd done nothing. And I knew it. And I started to, my chin started to quiver and started to break down and cry. And I said, dad, this is just so hard. And he kind of thought to himself, well, what's hard? He hasn't done one thing. <laughs> no. And, but what was hard was me learning how to kind of take ownership, yeah. take responsibility for this job he entrusted me with. And, and, um, and he said, well, what was our agreement? And I said, well, our agreement was that you would help me if you have time. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's right. Uh, or, you know, I, I, and he said, that's right. And I said, well, dad, do you have time? He goes, I've got time. And I ran into the house and I brought out two garbage sacks and I gave one to him and I took one. And I said, dad, would you go pick up that garbage <laughs> over there? That, uh, you know, that was thrown from the barbecue because because it makes me sick to, to look at it. And so he goes, I'll help you. I'm your helper. He went over and did it. It was at that moment, Jay, that I saw that my dad was responding to my lead, to my direction, that this was my job, my yard. And he was acting under my direction. And and um, and at that moment, I said, this is my job. And I began to take care of that yard. And from that moment forward, that became my job, green and clean. And I took care of that yard and it was green and clean all summer. And there for many, many summers thereafter, I did it as a six-year-old boy. Now my father would use this story and then we had a big yard. So this was a big job. My father would use the story to talk about win-win uh, uh, performance agreements mm -hmm. and, and stewardship delegation. But I was a six-year-old boy. I didn't know what a win-win performance agreement was. Mm -hmm. But here's what I knew as a six-year-old. I felt trusted. Yeah. I felt my father trusted me, and I didn't want to let him down. Mm -hmm. I was too young to be worried about money or status, but I didn't want to let my dad down. He trusted me. I wanted to be true to the trust he gave. And I rose to the occasion. I took care of the yard. And at that young age, it was imprinted in my mind. I'm capable. Mm. I'm responsible. I can do this. I can take a big, a big responsibility. And I rose to the occasion and I performed better and I returned the trust back. I learned trust from a trusting father at age six mm. that I'll never forget. And it became a mindset for how I saw life that there's potential in all of us. There was potential in me as a six-year-old. My father had to train me, teach me and trust me and stay with the trust, not pull it back. Mm. And, and then I've seen it repeat time and time again, as I've learned how to extend trust and be trusting of others and how that brings out the best in them. And I had the best model of it. My father did it with me at age six. Wow. 
my grandfather sort of did something similar for me. Like we have, um, we used to go over to his place and we used to have, we were given a job. He didn't have to give us a reward. He didn't have to, uh, you know, allow us to mow his lawn. So he gave my older brother and I the task of, I would have the backyard, which was the, the biggest, the most annoying. He had a lot of trees in the backyard. So it'd be very hard to navigate around. And we yeah. had this, this old uh, push mower and you had to try and start it. And when, when you're a young kid and you don't have much strength, uh, it's always fun. Um, but the responsibility was that, you know, if we did a good job, if we did an excellent job, and that's what he was trying to instill in us, the responsibility of taking up ownership and being excellent in whatever we did. So that included the little things such as mowing the lawn. Uh, and I remember one day I had a stinking rotten attitude uh, I was hot once again, uh, here in Sydney, Australia, it was an absolute nightmare. And I just had a, a rotten attitude and my grandfather saw it. He noticed it completely. And he's just, he didn't say a thing. He let me go about and, and do the lawn, even though I was just like cranky and complaining the whole entire time. And then when I finished the, the, the back lawn, he said, now you're going to do the front lawn. And I said, what? That's my brother's job. What are you talking about? He said, you're doing the front lawn. So I reluctantly did the front lawn. My brother got to relax, drink pub squash and watch Cartoon Network inside while I was out sweating bullets um, on the front <laughs> front lawn. When I finished it, I my older brother, he got paid $20 even though he didn't do anything. I walked up to my grandfather and expected the $20. Now, keep in mind, he didn't have to give me $20 at all. Right. But he wanted to instill that within us. There's always a reward when we do the, the right thing. So I go up to him and I say, so Grandy, where is my $20? Like I did both the lawns. I should be getting $40. And he goes, no, you had a bad attitude. Said, I don't reward bad attitudes. I reward excellent attitudes. <laughs> and uh, that was like one of the the biggest lessons as a young kid learning that from my grandfather. I still remember it. And I just related to the, the lawnmower or taking care of the lawn sort of story there. So it's absolutely, I love it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you learned from your grandfather at a young age there that your attitude matters, how you approach it matters. And, and, um, it wasn't going to, give you a reward when the attitude was, was, uh, not in the right place. And, and, uh, and, you know, similar with me on green and clean story is in this case, it was, I'm giving you a responsibility. You can do this. And it would have been very easy for my dad to take away that, that trust I'm trusting you. And I, and at first I didn't come through, mm. but instead he just stayed with our agreement. And then as he did that, I kind of, my conscience worked on me and I, I began to see, I, I haven't done this. And I, I asked him for help. And then he, and then I, at that moment, when I saw him helping me per my instruction, I realized this is my job. Mm. He trusted me. And that, that was what was hard for me to learn. Just like it was hard for you to learn your attitude matters. It was hard for me to learn. But once I learned it, I saw the world through that lens going forward. Mm. And that's what's happened. That's why I became so excited about trust is I saw, I saw how, what trusting other people, what it does to them, how it inspires them, how it brings out the best in them, 
how they rise to the occasion, how they perform better, and also how they reciprocate and give it back. Mm-hmm. And and um, and I became inspired to to write about trust and the power of trusting as well as being trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Kind of both halves. You got to be trustworthy. You got to be trusting to create trust. Wow. And I learned that from my dad. So I'm I'm I I need to get into trust because this is a conversation that. I've had with several other people and it's a very interesting topic uh, and I want to sort of dive into the the areas that are built around trust. So enabling us to actually get to the place where we can say, hey, I trust you. What are those areas that you noticed, um, whether it's from your your dad or someone else or even, even yourself? Yeah. Well, no, this is exactly what I write about in The Speed of Trust. Mm. So the foundation of trust is self-trust and that's your credibility and your credibility is your character and your competence. You need both to be high. If someone is high in character, but low in competence, at some point you might say, look, I like the person. They're nice. They're honest, but they can't deliver. They can't perform and you won't fully trust them. If someone is high in competence, but low in character, you might say, boy, I like their talents and their skills. They can get the job done, but maybe they're running everybody over in the process, or maybe they're being unethical or violating the values of the company. I won't fully trust them. Mm. I need to see both character and competence. The combination of both character and competence makes someone credible credibility and credibility is the foundation on which all trust is built. So if you want to be trusted, then focus on your trustworthiness, your credibility, that is your character and your competence. And the character will include your integrity, Mm. but it also will include your intent, which is your motive Mm. back to your learning and your, you know, your motive and your agenda and the motive that best builds credibility and trust with people is caring when you care about them. They know you care. If people think you care, they tend to trust you. If they don't think you care about them, they often will withhold the trust. The agenda that best builds credibility and trust that flows from your intent is when we seek mutual benefit. That's called win-win. Yes, I want to win, but I want your win as much as I do my own. And when people believe that you have their self-interest at heart, they tend to trust you. But if people just see you as self-serving, only care about yourself and not them and not have their best interest at heart, they often withhold the trust. So integrity and intent flow from your character. And that's kind of a construct. So I I use a metaphor of a tree. Mm. You have the roots and the trunk of the tree. You have the branches and the fruits of the tree. Mm. So the roots and the trunk is the character half. And that's the roots is integrity. The Mm. trunk is intent, your motive and your agenda, caring and mutual benefit. Then the upper half of the tree, the branches and the fruits, that's the competence half. Mm. So the branches is the third thing. And that's your capabilities, your talents, your skills, your expertise, your knowledge, because you got to make sure you have the right skills and expertise to be relevant. And then the upper, the top of the tree is the fruits. And that's your results, your performance, Mm. your current performance, your past performance, because that gives people confidence or trust 
that you're going to perform and come through because you have a track record of performing and coming through. So I call that four cores of credibility, integrity and intent flowing from your character, capabilities and results flowing from your competence. And when you have all four of those, that's a person that can be trusted. That's a highly credible person. You can build trust exceptionally fast with people. When you look at working with somebody else, you're kind of assessing those things. Are they honest? What's their agenda here? Is it self-serving? Are they really trying to create you know, mutual benefit? Are they relevant and capable? Do they have the skills and talents to do this? And what's their track record? Do they deliver? Do they do what they say they're going to do? You're kind of assessing that, judging about how credible somebody is. And, and so that's kind of the components. Credibility is where you start. And my advice to people is for any of us to increase our credibility, we all need to look in the mirror and start with ourselves and try to focus on our credibility, becoming more credible in those four areas, mm. integrity, intent, capabilities, results. And it's always, we're always on a journey there. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived, but we're on that journey. And the more self-trust, the more trust you have in yourself because of your credibility, the better and the faster it is to build trust with other people. Mm. The less you trust yourself, the harder it is to build trust with others. Because if you don't trust yourself, it's hard to trust others because you're not quite, you, you project that distrust of self out onto others too. Mm. That's why, it, you know, the most important thing all of us can do is focus on our personal credibility, mm. our self-trust as a starting point. And, and, and uh, it's always, you know, coming back to that, because that is the foundation on which all other trust is built. Mm. I, I that love makes that. sense? It makes total sense. And I think as well, looking at character and being authentically you. And going back to the aspect of service, like, are you really doing this for yourself or are you doing it for others? I think people can sense that. They're not stupid. Yeah. They, they can tell straight away whether or not you are authentic, whether or not it's your energy, your persona, your, your attitude. So once again, going back to the attitude. So that's all important for building trust within a, a relationship or a new relationship. Like whenever I do... Uh, conversations with people when I'm meeting them for the very first time, they don't know who, who I am. Like right, I, could, right. I could be whoever I want to be, to be honest, but I don't think that is valuable at all for number one, my guest, or number two, my, my audience, and number three, myself. Like if I'm lying to myself, then I don't trust myself too. And I feel like there's a lot of people that lie to themselves on a daily basis. There's so many of these sayings like fake it till you make it those ones that create false senses of identity, false senses of, of trust around uh, for them and for the relationships that they have in their life. So can we become, or how do we become more or less uh, speed demons? <laughs> Is yeah. that the good way of, of saying to trust ourselves more and therefore trust others? Is a great question. And you asked it the right way, which is how do we trust ourselves more so that we can build more trust with others? So let me, um, I'll share a story in, in answering this. I figure if I'm on the story box, well, I guess I'm going to share my story. A story about this. So <laughs> um, 
I'll never forget one time I was given a presentation on the speed of trust and it was a, like a four hour one and we had it into two halves. And so in the middle, we had a break and, and um, at the break, I had someone come up to me and talk to me behind the scenes. And he said, Stephen, this is so helpful because I can see my problem in my life through what you talked about. And what I'd presented in the first half of the presentation was how trust is built from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And I use a metaphor of a, the ripple effect where the drop of water comes down, the ripples, they start in the inside and then ripple out. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how there's five waves of trust. And the first wave is self-trust, trusting yourself. And then that is foundation, that precedes relationship trust, which was the second wave, wave which precedes team and organizational trust, which precedes market and customer trust, which precedes societal trust, inside out, ripple effect. And so I said, look, if you don't trust yourself, you have a hard time trusting others. So that's what I had shared. So at the break, he comes up to me and he said, um, it's so helpful because it explains my life to me. Because mm -hmm. I'm not where I'm at where I want to be in my career, he said. And I've always blamed everybody else. Mm. And I'll never forget my first job. I didn't trust my boss. I got a different boss. Didn't trust that boss either. So I left the company, got a different company. Didn't trust the management there either. Went to another company. Didn't trust them either. I go home in my community. I don't trust my neighbor. He goes, and then he was really open. He said, I, I, I find I didn't even trust my kids. Mm. And, and, you know, he was further in his, in his life, in his career. And he was kind of disappointed. And then he said this to me. And he kind of looked around. Um, to make sure nobody was looking. <laughs> and he said, when you went through the five ways to trust, I realized my problem. And he whispered in my ear, I don't trust myself. Mm. I don't trust myself. And I realized I am projecting that distrust of myself out onto everybody else and saying they're the problem when I haven't addressed the real issue, which is I don't trust myself. So what do I do? Your very question, what do I do to increase my self-trust? Here's my answer, and it's my answer to all of us. The best way I know to increase trust with ourselves is to learn to make and keep commitments to yourself. Even little ones, especially little ones. Because it's interesting, there's strong data that shows the number one behavior that builds trust with other people, if we want to build trust with other people, the best behavior is to make someone a commitment and to keep it. Mm -hmm. Make another commitment and to keep it. Repeat that process. Make, keep, repeat. Make, keep, repeat. You can build trust. You can build trust exceptionally fast with other people that way. Well, guess what? That's also the fastest way to build trust with yourself. Yeah. Make yourself a commitment and keep it. And too often we don't treat ourselves with the same and a commitment we make to ourselves with the same respect we do a commitment to somebody else. Mm. And we, and we make commitments we never intend to, to keep and we violate them. And, and, but what happens is we lose a sense of clarity of integrity of power with ourselves. And it could be as simple as I'm going to set my alarm tomorrow, an hour earlier at five instead of six, I'm going to get up and go exercise. Mm. In a sense, that's a commitment. It's a small commitment. But you make the commitment the night before so that when the alarm goes off, you don't make it in the moment when you're tired. But you say, no, I've made it a commitment the night before. In that small little commitment, you keep it. Then you go to the next commitment, you keep it. 
make another small one, keep it, keep it. What happens is quickly, it's, it's the turbo. It's, it literally can happen fast where you get a sense of my honor is greater than my moods. Mm-hmm. I, I am who I say I am. I do what I say I'm going to do. And I'm making key commitments to myself as well as to others. And you get a sense of clarity, of integrity, of power. And it be, it's that simple and yet that hard. Mm-hmm. But too often we just kind of skip this step and we try to talk about how important it is to keep commitments to others, which it is, and don't show that same respect to ourselves by making sure we keep the commitments to ourselves. So that simple and yet that difficult. Mm. I love the commitment aspect because honestly, I think being a person or a man of your word inspires more leaders, inspires so many other people. And I'm curious about what if you break that trust and what have you discovered about forgiveness? Well, first of all, I think forgiveness is vital for all of us because we live in a low trust world and all of us fall short. Mm. Um, And if you, you know, we have to be able to forgive and learn and get better and grow and develop and, and forgiveness is, is important, including the, when we don't forgive others, um, it actually hurts us mm. as well as them, but it hurts us. And, and, uh, and, you know, to have a generous heart and abundant mindset of being willing to forgive. And, and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you immediately trust the person because that might not be smart if they've abused it, but you can choose to forgive and still not choose to trust. I think choosing to forgive is always a, a good thing. I think on, on, on the trust, we have to, if the trust has been lost, we need to restore the trust. Yeah. And, and here's the key learning on this one, Jay, from my experience. When we've lost trust of another person, the key learning is this. You can't talk your way out of a problem that you behaved your way into. <laughs> so if we've lost people's trust because of our behavior, words alone won't get it back. Mm. The only way to get it back, we got to behave our way back into trust, just like we behaved our way out of trust. Mm. And, and, that, and that will take some time. But I do believe that you can, in most situations, behave your way back into trust if you're willing to pay the price and do it and, and therefore restore the trust and reestablish it. And that's important in a low trust world that we can regain, reestablish, restore trust in most situations mm. if we're willing to behave our way back into it. And then if someone else has lost trust with us, it's their fault. Are we willing to both forgive, but also are we willing to allow them to behave themselves back into trust with us and, and uh, give them a chance to demonstrate and prove that they can do it? So those behaviors include you know, taking responsibility for the fact we've lost someone's trust. Let's say we lost someone's trust. I own it. Mm. I practice accountability. I own, I take responsibility. I lost trust and I want to, I want to do something about it. And then I'm going to right the wrong. And that might mean apologizing, making it restitution, a legal concept to make whole, making it right Mm. with them. And then I might say, I might listen, what can I do to reestablish, regain trust? I'm willing to pay the price to do it, even if it takes me a long time. Mm. You know, so I'm trying to listen to understand what I can do to regain it. And then I clarify expectations of what I'm going to do going forward. I make commitments 
that I'm gonna, what I'm gonna try to do to regain the trust. Then the most important step, I now need to keep the commitments. I need to do what I just said I was going to do. And it may take me time, a while, but if I'm consistent and if I'm intentional about it, it's possible in most situations to behave your way back into trust and actually restore it. Mm. And, and I think that's critical for all of us today. The idea that you can restore trust when it's been lost, if we're willing to behave ourselves back into it, you can't talk your way out of it. You got to behave your way out of it. And that will take some time, but that is hopeful. And, and, uh, um, and I think that we need that in a world of declining trust. I think so too. I, I have a saying that I love that I think might help clarify that, that point a little bit Please. more for people. It's be persistent to remain consistent of the things that you want. So if you want to build that trust back again, then like you said, persistently behave in the way that is going to build it back up again. The, the moment that you stop being persistent, that consistency just falls apart because consistency is the flow and effect of when I am persistent doing something i think they get this oh, i'm just going to be i'm just going to be consistent no you gotta persistently go after it because for me persistency is the key to working on the things that need to be worked on which is building the trust back that's beautiful jay i love it yeah that persistence is saying i'm willing to pay the price i'm willing to behave my way back someone that doesn't want to be persistent might want to be talked their way back yep. in the trust but now you got to behave your way back. And that means persistence in your consistency mm-hmm. and you stay at it and you work at it. And, and, um, and, it, but, but it's possible to do it. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen people fall short, make a mistake, lose trust and regain it by how they took responsibility for it, owned it and made it right and stayed with it until they consistently over time, where they were persistent in demonstrating that they were going to do it the right way and make up for it. And, and then the person would say, my goodness, I, you've really reestablished the trust with me. In fact, it's higher now than it was before. Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible. It's not easy to do this. And, and I acknowledge there might be some situations where maybe you can't, mm-hmm. maybe you, you're not given a chance to, because it takes two people to restore trust. Yeah. The one that lost it and the other needs to be willing to give them a ch- the other person a chance to behave their way back into trust. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a transactional relationship. You never get that chance. Um, and, and also what's the nature of the loss of trust when, when it was violated, mm-hmm. when it's a violation of character, that's harder to restore than a violation of competence. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone's not capable or doesn't perform because of a lack of a skill or that's easier to forgive and, and, and to restore than if someone was completely unethical and dishonest and just, it was a scam and took advantage. That's hard to restore in that case. Mm-hmm. And so you have to look at the nature of the loss of trust is it on the character or competent side, the nature of the relationship is it transactional or more ongoing and the willingness of both parties. Mm-hmm. But with that, with those conditions in place, if I'm willing to now behave my way back into trust and I'm persistent, mm-hmm. I think you can do it. And that's, that's a useful useful construct to think about in a low trust world. I love that. I love how you expanded on it <laughs> so much more than what I did. Um, Stephen, I am mindful of the time. So I do want to ask you two more final questions, if that's okay, okay with you. So this is uh, a question that 
I haven't really asked many people, but I want to ask you because I'm, I'm curious about it. What do you love the most about your story? And what, secondly to that, what do you love the most about yourself? Okay. Thank you for asking. Those are beautiful questions. Um, I think I love, what I love most about my story is that I think, you know, my, my story is a trust story. I think I'm a product of trust from my father, who, as I shared with green and clean at a young age, trusted me. And I saw the equivalent of that take place throughout my entire life. I had someone who believed in me, who saw potential in me, who saw more potential in me than I ever did in myself and helped me come to see it in myself. And he did it through his belief in me and his extension of trust to me. Mm. And so it was, so what's interesting is that my story is what I'm teaching and talking about is what I have lived and learned. Mm. I've earned it. And I've also, part of my story is that um, as I, you know, as I grew up, as I, you know, I started when I was six, when I really had the paradigm introduced to me from my father, the experience. But then my whole life, I've, I've also been in situations as I've gotten to, into leadership positions and the like. I've, I've generally built high trust teams, but I also did a merger with our arch competitor. When I was a CEO of a company, we merged with our arch competitor and suddenly we're combined these two competitive companies and half the people didn't trust me. And, and it wasn't because I did bad things, but because we'd been arch competitors for years. Mm. And I had to learn. I saw the high cost of low trust firsthand. I saw how it's not just a given. I have to be intentional and deliberate about it. And, and then I focused on saying, I'm going to try to earn the trust of these people that don't trust me. Mm. And, and I did that. And I, and I paid the price. I was persistent, but I also was intentional and deliberate about behaving my way into trust with them. And when I did that, we actually moved the needle on trust and we went from no trust to high trust and that changed everything. And I think my story is a better story having been on both the positive side where I built high trust teams routinely and the negative side where half the people didn't trust me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to learn and earn the right to be trusted. And I can't just assume it and take it for granted. And because of that, having earned these, this insight, it's a better story because I have more understanding, more empathy for all of us because sometimes life isn't fair and sometimes trust isn't fair and you have to still take responsibility, own it and be intentional about building it through your credibility, through your behavior. So that's my story. And, and, um, and I'm now feeling like I'm telling my story of why trust matters that is the most important thing we can work on because it changes everything else that we're doing. Mm. And when we, when trust, when trust is high in relationships, when trust is high on teams in cultures, we can do everything else better, faster. We get a multiplier effect an accelerator and energizer. When trust is low, just the opposite. It's a tax. It diminishes, dilutes, taxes, everything we're doing. So it's high leveraged. And I'm telling that story that trust matters enormously is the one thing that changes everything. And that mm. trust is a learnable skill mm. through our credibility, through our behavior. I learned it. You can learn it. Others can learn it. We can build trust on purpose intentionally. So that's the, I feel like my story, my message is my story. Mm. 
Mm. My life is my story and I'm sharing this with others. Mm. And so that's my, the first part. And the second part, what do I love most about myself? Um, probably just that I see myself as on the journey. Mm. I don't, I haven't arrived. Um, and, and I, at all, but I'm on the journey and I'm coming back to it again, again, and again, and, and trying to stand this journey of trying to be a high trust leader, high trust person in every way and, and tried to inspire, but I fall short. And, um, you know, and if someone asked me, do you live all the, in the speed of trust, I have 13 high trust behaviors. Do you live all the 13 behaviors? And my response is, about 80% of the time. <laughs> I'm always trying. I'm trying 100%, but I fall short. Yeah. And I'm falling, you know, but I'll always come back to it. Mm. And so maybe the thing I like most about myself is that I, I try to come back to it. I try to change to improve, to get better when I fall short. Mm. It's not that I've arrived. It's that I'm on the journey, but I'm very much on the journey, mm. intentional about it and working hard at it and and trying to, trying to um, just go to a better place today than I was yesterday and, and, and get better at this. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that I think we can all relate to very few of us have truly arrived. We never really arrived. We're always, it's just one summit to another, you know, life is about contribution, not accumulation. It's an ongoing process of creating value, giving back, making a difference, mattering. And we're all on the journey mm. and I'm still on the journey. My father was still on the journey. Up until he passed away, and and um, he had a great expression that maybe was my final comment, and that is um, that I would say is also my expression. His expression was to live life in crescendo. Mm -hmm. The idea, like crescendo in music, it, you know, where it goes up versus diminuendo when it goes down, and the whole idea is that you're living your life in crescendo. It's going up. It's going up. It's going up. And the, and the premise is the paradigm, the mindset is that your greatest contribution to make is still always in front of you. You've never arrived. You're always on the journey. You're always seeing, I'm always living life in crescendo, meaning I still have yet to accomplish my greatest thing. It's still in front of me. My greatest contribution, my greatest value is still in front of me. It's a mindset. And that's how I view what I'm doing. I've written Speed of Trust. It's done well but I think my greatest contribution is still in front of me. Mm. I want to make, I still have yet to make it. I'm on the journey. And that's it. That's exciting for me. Absolutely. I mean, what kind of life will we all be living if we weren't still on the journey, trying to achieve new things, climbing new challenging mountains? I mean, it'd be a very boring life, a very boring existence. <laughs> that. And it's like that. I love that question of, uh, do you live all the 13, uh, uh, what was it? Um, 13 trust behaviors. Trust behaviors. Yeah. It's like asking a Christian, do you live by the 10 commandments every single day? <laughs> it's like, no, we try. <laughs> but no, <laughs> it doesn't work that exactly. way. It's like the pursuit of actually trying to. And I think the willingness oftentimes is, is the key. And I appreciate, I'm so glad that uh, I had you on the show because this has been a, a great uh, masterclass for me <laughs> in learning. Um, I'm much better for it. So I, I know that a lot of people listening are going to be too. Stephen, my final question for you, my friend, is this is my all-time favorite question. I ask it always to everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one. 
but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I would love it to say that um, he, that I modeled what I taught, that I was a person that was authentic and real. And I was who I said I was. So a person of true authenticity, integrity, uh, and that's both the character and competence, but also that it, it wasn't, my primary purpose was not just about me. Mm. It was about truly doing what you're doing and uh, seeing the potential, the worth, the potential for greatness inside of people. And that I saw it. I saw greatness in other people. I communicated greatness and potential and worth into other people. I helped develop greatness, potential and worth in other people. And I helped unleash the greatness, potential and worth of other people so that I was a catalyst to help people see it in themselves and release it just like my father did for me. If I could do the same for others when I'm a hundred and people say he unleashed the greatness inside of me. He helped me see it mm. and realize it. And again, this is what you're doing with the, with the, this, you know, story box podcast, help people see their potential and their worth and to realize it. And, and um, if I could be, have that kind of influence on people and people say, yes, he found, yes, I found my voice through trust and I inspired others to find their voice too. I helped them realize it. And that would be a great thing because then I would have given my gift away and, and uh, which is to help others find their gift. Mm. I feel like that is a perfect way to sort of wrap up this conversation. Stephen, MR Covey, thank you so much, sir, for your, your energy, your enthusiasm for building trust right now and for teaching trust what it takes to actually get to that, that place for each and every one of us and trusting ourselves and knowing our own worth. Where can people find you, connect with you, and learn more about you? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jay. Um, you can find me at, just go to speedoftrust.com website, www.speedoftrust.com, and you'll see a variety of uh, possibilities, uh, books, uh, um, videos you can access for free, things like that to, to, to go deeper into this. Um, I'm on Twitter at Stephen M. R. Covey, uh, LinkedIn, the like. So the regular social media channels, but speedoftrust.com is probably the most useful thing. And if you're interested in this idea of trust, both why it matters and how to build it, I think you'll love the Speed of Trust book because it's so practical and tangible. And, and you know, and, and, and probably one of the big insights, of course, is that to have trust, not only do we have to be trustworthy, we have to be trusting. And that's the real charge to all of us. Yes, let's focus on our trustworthiness, but let's also be trusting of others. That is leadership. It's, a, it's an extraordinary act of leadership to extend trust to others. Like my father did to me, and I'm trying to do with others. We can do the same. You're doing it with your guests. 
and it's a great way to lead. It's a better way to live. It matters a lot. So thanks so much. So uh, speedoftrust.com is a great place to do it. And I appreciate the time, uh, Jay. Great to be with you. Admire what you're doing and the impact you're having on the world. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.